Hello, here's our Sabbath Vesper story that we welcome Sabbath with. It's titled Personal Story. And this is chapter 13, and 15 is our final chapter of our book, Light in the Jungle, by Jesse and Leo Hallowell. Personal Story. To people reading our story, it must seem that Jesse and I were so involved in the lives of the river people that we had no lives of our own. Sometimes we would almost have agreed, and yet we know that it is not so. Under Jesse's, under Jesse's crisp white uniform was a woman, calm and strong in time of emergency, but with all the usual feminine frailties, and I, though I was able to cope, I thought, with almost anything that arose was certainly no different than other men. We had treated thousands of cases of malaria but when it struck us, we reacted exactly like anyone else. We lay in our beds alternately, shivering and burning with fever, and wondering if each moment was to be our last. For 17 years we had lived on the river and managed to avoid the fever, but one night we were tired after a long, hard day, and when we returned to the Lucero, anchored in the harbor in Maui's, I dropped down on the sofa without bothering to close the window screens. Several hours later, I woke up and put them up, but the damage had been done. Within nine days, both Jesse and I were running fevers of 105 degrees and were too sick even to treat ourselves. We sent our boat boy into the city to get a doctor. When he arrived, he shook his head. After treating all those people for a little case of malaria, he said, you get it yourselves and you have to call in somebody else. We both felt so terrible it was hard to speak. I heard Jesse say, Doctor, it's not the same when you get it yourself. I steeled myself and finally got out of question. Doctor, do you think we ought to go to a hospital? He stood in the middle of the cabin. There isn't a hospital in town that has the comfort you two have here. You're just acting like a couple of typical patients who want a little extra pampering. Sick as we were or thought we were, we managed to laugh at that because it was so completely true. Now, what do you have for malaria? He asked when we gave him a list of the special drugs. He said, give yourself a dose of your own medicine and go to sleep. We did just that, and in the morning we were delighted and maybe a little surprised to find our medicines had worked just as well on us as on others. And before the day was over, we felt so much better that we were up and around. The malaria had hit us shortly after the end of World War II, a conflict that had made as many changes in our lives as in those of any other parents. While uniforms blossomed like Amazon orchids on the streets of Beiling, while American officials and technicians began zooming up and down the river in their launches, up in the gales of the North Atlantic, thousands of miles away, our son Jack was doing his part. And no parents watched the males more closely than we. Jack had been a junior at Pacific Union College when war broke out. He was inducted into the Navy, and we were as proud as any father and mother in the Southern Hemisphere when he wrote us that he had been present at the historic Mid-Atlantic Conference between President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill. Then we got word that he was being sent to Brazil. Like every other mother, Jessie hustled after the kitchen and began cooking and baking as if her life depended on it, for he was already en route and was landing in Beiling by noon the next day. So he flew to the land that had been his second home for so long. He had just one day to stop over in Bailing with us, not nearly long enough to eat all the good food Jesse had got ready for him. Then he would be on his way, he told us, to buy a 
where he was to be assigned to a post in the Naval Observer's Corps. He kept his most important news until the last. Before leaving the States, he said he had fallen in love. He and his young lady planned to be married. Jesse cried a little, as women do, and I shook Jack's hand, as my Nebraska father had done years before when I told him about Jesse. We had to keep track of the romance through Jack's letters. And when he wrote to us that he had been able to arrange for his bride-to-be to fly to Brazil to marry him, we were happy and sad all at once, happy because of our son's happiness, sad because travel restrictions wouldn't allow us to be present at the ceremony. But we were able to get our first look at our son's bride-to-be. She had a two-day stopover in Beiling, and we were delighted to be with her during that time. However, one of the documents which I will always treasure is a telegram we received at that time from Jack and Baia. Dad, don't take Audrey on a trip on that Luciero, but send her at once here to Baia, your son Jack. We did as ordered. Theirs was the first naval wedding in Baia, and it was a big celebration. They were married, as Brazilian law requires, in a civil ceremony. Then the religious ceremony was performed by a Protestant minister, and the young couple marched out of the church under an international arch formed by the cross swords of the American officers on one side, the Brazilians on the other. Meanwhile, our daughter Marion was still in the States, and though we heard from her regularly and treasured our snapshots of her, I found it hard to believe that the lovely young woman they portrayed was our little girl, the little girl I had kissed goodbye on a station platform in 1936 while she cried inconsolably. Marion had finished high school and was taking pre-nursing courses at the Washington Missionary College near Washington, D.C., and when we received a letter one day that gave us a real shock, Dr. Raymond Earnshaw, who had written it, described himself as an intern at a hospital near Washington, and his purpose in writing us was to ask formally for our daughter's hand in marriage. This news wasn't as startling to Jessie it was to me, for she had visited Marion in the States in 1939, just before the war broke out. Besides, women have a sixth sense about such things, but for me, how could I think of my little girl as old enough to marry, and just who was this stranger who wrote us like this? As we went up and down the river answering the white-tail calls for aid, I'm afraid my mind was often on my daughter and her plans for the future. Then came a letter from Marion, filling us in all the details that the doctor had left out, saying that she wanted us to come to the state so that her dad could perform the wedding ceremony. The war was still going on and travel was almost impossible, but our son got me back to the States somehow on a naval transport. We managed to get Jesse on a seaplane that one of the rubber development organizations was using to haul crude rubber up to the States. Marion was waiting for us in Miami when we arrived on separate planes one day apart and we went together up to Washington, D.C., where Jesse and I met our prospective son-in-law and gave him our stamp of approval. I married them in the Tacoma Park Adventist Church, and Jesse and I headed back for the jungle, feeling a little sad and a good deal older. When Raymond was called by the Navy and sent to Guam, Marion stayed in Washington and finished her nursing course. But after the war, we were able to get together for a joyous reunion. Marion and her husband made us extremely happy when they came to Rio de Janeiro, where for a time he served as a missionary doctor. They have since returned to the States and are now living and working together in Texas. Seeing so much sickness about us, Jesse and I used to congratulate ourselves on our own good health. We took what precautions we could, of course, but we couldn't stop our work on account of rain or heat or dangers everywhere present on the Amazon. 
It was a years eventually which began to take a toll. During our visit to the States in 1936, Jessie had to undergo an operation for the removal of her gallbladder, and the following year, I, the rugged Nebraskan who had never even owned a pair of glasses, developed a terrible eye infection. I got to a specialist as soon as I could, and he gave me medicine which cleared up the condition. But when I returned to the States after the war and had my eyes checked, I was stunned to hear the word cataract and the news that I would have to have them removed from both eyes. The medical profession isn't sure what causes this disease, but in my case, they figured the cataracts might have developed from the bright glare of the Amazon waters over so many years of tropical sun. We weathered both these interruptions to our life and continued with our work, only to hear in 1957 the most dreadful word of all. We were living in the outskirts of Rio, and Jesse had remained at home while I went out alone. I was up the river from Beiling and ready to leave on a long trip into Indian country, when just 15 minutes before my scheduled departure, I received a telegram saying that Jesse was ill. If there had been any speed limits on the Amazon, I would have broken every one of them as I raced back to Beiling. There the news was even worse. Jesse had cancer of the liver, I was told, and could not possibly survive. I hurried back to Rio. I made that trip dozens of times before, but it had never seemed so long. At home, our doctors told me it wasn't Jesse's liver, but one kidney that was completely destroyed. Almost all such cases were cancerous, he added. But I found that I was not alone. Excuse me for that a little interruption. I'm back. I hurried back to Rio. I made that trip dozens of times before, but it had never seemed so long. At home, our doctors told me it wasn't Jesse's liver, but one kidney that was completely destroyed. Almost all such cases were cancerous, he added. But I found that I was not alone in my grief and alarm. Our church set aside one Sabbath for fasting and prayers for Jesse's life. The operation was performed. Jesse survived it, and four days later, word came back there was not a sign of cancer in the kidney that had been removed. Together, we were to be allowed to complete our years of work in the fastnesses of Brazil. Together, we were to be allowed to return to our native land. In our part of the United States, young people leave the parental nest as soon as they're able to use their wings. Some settle in towns nearby, others fly farther to other parts of the country. They marry and set up new homes, but summers after the harvest or at Christmas time, they visit back and forth, and there are happy family reunions at the various members exchange news. As for us, far away on the Amazon, this was one of the things Jesse and I missed the most. We come from large families, both of us, and letters went back and forth frequently, but it's just not the same. To see our parents again and our brothers and sisters with their families became one of our longings. In 1936, this wish had come true. We had ordered a new Ford by mail, and it was waiting for us when we arrived in the States on that year's furlough. In it, we drove out to Nebraska, where we spent happy days visiting with Jesse's relatives and mine, who still lived in the neighborhood of Odessa. My parents were more than 75 and had never traveled much and had not even seen some of their grandchildren scattered throughout the West. How would you like me to drive you out to see them? I asked my father one day. Fine, he said. We'll go from place to place. It'll be a family reunion on the installment plan. Through Nebraska and on to Wyoming, we went, Jesse and the children, my parents and myself, to stop in Cheyenne to visit my oldest sister, Flo, then on to Nevada and California throughout the Great West, where my seven brothers and sisters and families lived. In San Francisco, Dad got his first view of the ocean, and as he stood looking at the vast expanse of the Pacific, he turned to me 
I have always wanted to see the ocean, son. That's one reason I came on this trip, to see my children again and this ocean. Back in Odessa, the train that would start me on the way to Washington, D.C., from where I would go on to New York and then to Brazil, was leaving at 3 a.m. We sat up that night around the fire and talked until almost midnight. At 2 when the alarm went off, Mother was already getting breakfast, fried eggs and potatoes, toast and hot chocolate. Father had his lantern all shined up and his old handcart ready to haul my bags the one block to the station. At the station, we waited silently for a few minutes. Then we saw the headlight of the express coming down over the hill. And in the dark, Father stood by the side of the rails, waving his lantern until the train blew a blast on the whistle and ground to a halt. I said my goodbye and got on the train. From my window, I could see them. Dad with his lantern, Mother with a shawl over her shoulders, holding onto Dad's arm. It was the last time I ever saw them. All right, brothers and sisters, that's the end of chapter 13. Next week we will read chapter 14, Fleet Admiral. Have a blessed Sabbath day. God bless you.